1: Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to another episode of Good Influence. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about as well as answer some of your questions. This week we're talking about depression. Looking back on ourselves before and after being diagnosed, the individual differences in how we approach treatment and how talking about mental health publicly can help all of us understand each other better. So joining me this week is Emma Wardner. Perhaps better known by her online nickname, Emma Guns, Emma is a beauty and lifestyle writer and brand consultant. After spending 10 years as beauty editor at OK Magazine, she is currently a freelance journalist and podcaster. Her podcast, The Emma Guns Show, features interviews with lots of different guests and has now amassed over 10 million downloads.
2: I just felt like everything was a challenge. I just felt like everything was like wading
1: through treacle. So Emma, we're going to talk about depression today always a very easy and light breezy topic so <laughs> it's probably a good place to start if you want to tell us a bit of your kind of mental health journey and you know why, why are we talking about depression today?
2: Uh, yeah absolutely thank you for asking me Gemma because I appreciate it I think it's something that um, we need to talk about more all of us. Mm. Um, so my mental health journey if you had asked me that a little while ago I might have said, oh, that started when I was diagnosed with depression aged 37. But actually it's become really clear to me through things like therapy and through actually leaning into that after the uh, diagnosis, it's made me sort of look back and realize how evident the signs of anxiety and depression Mm. were were, were just so clear even from childhood I remember the first time I ever went to go and sit an exam it was to um join the the youngest class at the school that my brother was at and I turned up the head headmaster walked down the stairs and he was wearing one of those big scholarly you know like the capes that teachers wear at prize giving oh my and I just was it was the closest thing in real life I'd ever seen, I guess, to Dracula. (laughs) So I just freaked out (laughs) and hid behind my mum's skirt and then just didn't, wasn't able to sit the exam. And it was only sort of, I never thought about that until I then went into therapy and realized, well, that's a sign that you were not coping, Mm. that you were having a highly reactive emotional response to a situation. And actually that's probably not the, the, the normal and inverted commas or rational response to that scenario necessarily. So I guess, and I don't know if this was your experience too, is that you can kind of get a diagnosis or you can have someone say, yes, you're experiencing this. And then as you begin to unpick it on the journey to recovery, you realize that there were signs long before that maybe this had always been coming.
1: Yeah, I think I can relate to that to a certain extent from personally. I think um, I think I was definitely anxious before I was depressed so yeah you can kind of I think probably at a lower level to be fair but yeah it would always be um there'd be certain times like yeah exams are probably quite a good example where when I look at it now I was you know coping with different amounts of anxiety in different ways and kind of I don't know it's a tricky one because then then you think you know well it's exams like most people are probably anxious about exams but I feel like I had to do more to cope with that level of anxiety than maybe other people around me so I think yeah I agree when you look back there's different things that you can see maybe I mean you say yourself there were a lot of kind of clear signs of anxiety and depression do you think other people could see those signs or really is it something that you maybe kept quite close to your chest or how do you feel about that
2: again that's another really interesting one because If I'm being really brutally honest, Mm. I think I've had to navigate this on my own, so much so that my little motto that I came up with in therapy was, you're on your own, kid. I don't know why I added the kid on the end, but Mm. I guess to soften the blow. (laughs) Some inner child work, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think I had spent a long time thinking that something or someone would save me, that something or someone would happen that would make me feel better all of a sudden. Mm. So... Actually, the most empowering thing I was able to do on my path to recovery was take ownership and be accountable and understand that I had agency and feeling better. And it's not as clear cut as saying it's a choice to feel good. There's an element of truth to that, but not when you're dealing with a chemical imbalance in the brain. I think we have to... Mm. We have to be sensitive to the fact that it's not as simple as just snap out of it and in fact I remember distinctly a friend saying to me um oh for goodness sake I think you're just a bit depressed just stop seeing everything as black and white and it was just like I'd been slapped around the face and I remember just feeling very wounded one of those conversations Mm -hmm. where you walk away and almost apologize for being a drain on that person I'm sorry that I'm making you sorry that I'm being such a misery gut and then you walk away and sort of look down and you're soaked in blood (laughs) metaphorically speaking because Mm. you just feel so horribly wounded by their observation because I don't know I guess I was in that mental headspace where I didn't want to be depressed yeah I I really didn't want I didn't want to be down I didn't want to be a drain on people's good mood and I knew I was and I had no idea how to fix it
1: none it makes me sad to hear you say that I mean for so many reasons but also when somebody is talking to you and saying oh for goodness sake you're just you're a bit depressed so like they could see that you were depressed but the response to that is so disjointed like it doesn't sound like there was a lot of empathy there it's kind of I think that is a difficult thing about people maybe talking more about mental health it's kind of has a tendency for some people to water it down and not realize how serious it is. And you'll kind of chuck the word at someone and say, oh, well, you're probably just that
2: mm.
1: without really then thinking about what impact that was obviously having on you that they weren't realizing.
2: Yeah. And I, and the thing is, is everyone goes through their own issues. And I think, well, what I what I perceived, and I will never know whether this is the truth because I haven't ever interrogated the other person about this, but I don't know what it looked like. I don't know what it looked like from the outside because I think one of the things I discovered was that outwardly I think people that worked with me or were close to me thought I was kind of doing okay
1: Mm.
2: and actually they might have thought that I was not particularly approachable about it I don't know I just think that what was being uh, what they were seeing outwardly wasn't was so mismatched from what was going on inwardly And I think I had, uh, I I really thought not that the world was out to get me, but I was very suspicious Mm. of people and people's intentions and that made my exterior quite brittle. And I think that's obviously if you're quite suspicious and you've got that sort of, you feel terrible inside as well, you're not going to reach out to the outside world for help because you don't want to show your vulnerability You don't want to say to people, I'm really upset by what's happening. And I guess because when I had done it, my experience had been either silence or I felt as though I had then exhibited a weakness that then made me more vulnerable. So I guess that made my modus operandi from that point forward just to just retreat and just not tell anyone. Yeah, it does sound kind of like
1: the classic defense mechanism sort of thing, as in you didn't want to show you were sad. But it's kind of, I guess at times it can be easier to show anger and that there is some kind of strength of emotion rather than acting like everything's normal. Because to you, obviously, you weren't feeling normal at all.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think normal is such an interesting word. And I think I just felt like everything was a challenge. It just felt like everything was like wading through treacle. Mm. Just like the daily stuff.
1: Yeah it's hard to think of like you kind of don't really know what normal is at that point I suppose do you? So when you say you can kind of look back and see signs of this kind of thing from quite a young age but then you mentioned you weren't diagnosed with was it depression and anxiety you said? Mm -hmm, Yeah. So you weren't diagnosed until you were 37 which you know that's quite a gap in between what what were you kind of like in all that time in between what was going on, what happened so that you finally then went and got a diagnosis? I think
2: just for the majority of my life, I was just always i don't know always worried that the sword of Damocles was hanging over my head, or that i re- i know this is this is kind of off, but I was reading demi Moore's autobiography recently. Hmm. and she said something in it that made me really kind of stop and go wow I don't think I've actually ever thought that but that's bang on and she said that she would in any situation she would think is it okay that I'm here and that's absolutely on the money how I felt
1: yeah everywhere yeah god that's that is good yeah and I mean you were in a lot of quite like glamorous places through your work and stuff as well so that must have been must have been so odd to kind of navigate at the same time as then inside feeling like you didn't know if you should be there yeah ah but that okay
2: so that's interesting because I think essentially what I did is I had this feeling of it's okay that I'm here I don't feel like I'm good enough to be here what would make me good enough to be here a job title (laughs) (laughs) because then that because that's in front of me Mm -hmm. I'm I'm somebody from somewhere and therefore you have to welcome me in and I have to be treated a certain way and that was actually quite a damaging when I look at it now actually it's kind of almost like that wasn't I can understand why I thought to do that but it wasn't the most helpful thing yeah because I wasn't solving the ultimate problem I was trying to put on a suit of armor and if you're trying to sort of put this facade on something that's quite weak and quite fragile and mm. you know, it's not necessarily going to work but I use, I mean I think about the films that I watched growing up and a lot of the female protagonists were journalists it all look very glamorous they seem to have great lives and they'd meet celebrities and I thought well that's that's what I'm going to do then because mm. that they seem to be important their lives are together by the end of the film they've got their promotion the <laughs> the boyfriend <laughs> and a bag of swag so great what do you want to be when you grow up (laughs) that so which is is so lame I'm so I'm almost embarrassed to say it but it's but it's true
1: I mean where do any of us get our ideas about what we want to be when we grow up from I think I mean to be fair I hear that and I think oh you had an idea about what you wanted to be and you actually went and did it like that sounds quite impressive to me because there's not many people who end up in that kind of job
2: yeah I guess I mean that is true, and I do sometimes think, I really don't know how you did it. but it was it, it it was good in many ways, and I'm really pleased for lots of reasons. But yeah, there is a part of me that realized that for a long time I wore my job title as the thing that stood b- between me and the world. So I used it as a shield. It was like I didn't think they people would accept me for me. Mm. But I thought they had to accept me because I was a beauty editor on a best-selling magazine. And so yeah. it kind of, it felt easier, but actually it was more complicated. So
1: when did things change enough that you ended up, yeah, going to get your diagnosis, I suppose? Was it the first time that you'd spoken to someone about it that you got diagnosed? Did you have to kind of, did you struggle at all to get a kind of diagnosis?
2: No. Um, no, I had probably from my teens, I had been a moaner. And this is relevant to the diagnosis because I think I, you know, I'd go to school and then I would moan. So-and-so's being horrible to me, I'd moan to somebody else. Or when I was in work, I would moan because I didn't know how to ask for help and I certainly didn't want to be diagnosed with a mental health issue Mm. because I thought then that was a big black mark against my name and it would be horrifying and embarrassing and so I just moaned for a very very long time and I got sick and tired of myself and essentially what happened is I went freelance So I didn't have that shield anymore Mm. and as you would expect, the world didn't feel the same and it was quite overwhelming and I also had said, I have some really negative patterns in terms of how I form friendships. I tend to, I I tend to get beguiled and I am also, I'm complicit in the dynamic but I just got into some dynamics where I was giving, giving, giving and not really getting a heck of a lot in return. Not that mm. it is about reciprocation in that way, but just it just led to a, a pattern of having felt let down a lot by people yeah. that I had trusted and loved and given a lot of myself to. And I guess all of those things culminated in just, whereas I've, I think for 20 or more years, I'd been sort of bumbling along, just sort of navigating just above the line of it being a problem. Hmm. so I would dipped down every now and again but I'd be able to pull myself out and then I would dip down again so there was always sort of running on this course of slipping in and out of low mood mm-hmm. all of these things combined into it just really hitting peak rock bottom and I remember calling my friend Marcia who I'd worked with on the magazine and she and I left at around the same time And I was essentially hysterical and just said, I can't remember what it was like. I don't know what it was like when we used to do that. I know I used to walk into that office and I know I used to sort of say, oh, where are my proofs? What's why is this happening? And I ran a department and I I just said, I can't remember what it was like. Like Mm -hmm. if you said to me, if you, we went back in time, I don't have the muscles anymore. I can't remember what it was like to feel like that, but I know it happened And she just very calmly said to me, you urgently need to take some time off and you need to get some help. And I don't know whether I would have done. And then I also, another friend of mine, I was crying about something. And a friend said, I've never known anyone who just can't navigate life in the way that you can't. Everything is such a big deal. You have no emotional toolkit. And I just thought, right, I mean, I just can't keep going on like this. I'm sick and tired of being told by my friends that I'm a burden (laughs) not Marcia obviously like Marcia was obviously very um she was like you need help now but I think I just wound people up and I just annoyed them because I was just a Debbie Downer but it was because there was some stuff going on
1: yeah that's so sad I mean that sounds so harsh there's it are you still are you still friends with any of these people like how did your relationships end up going after that because you kind of you know I've said a couple of things where it wasn't the best and also people were clearly seeing something but not really looking any deeper did you manage to kind of fix those relationships or was that something you had to move on from some some relationships there's a famous saying in therapy
2: isn't there you can't take everyone with you mm. um so yeah some some didn't come along for the ride and I think you know people's intentions so with the friend who said to me you just don't have the emotional toolkit. I don't think she said it out of cruelty. I think she said it as an observation. And I know her character. And I know that she didn't say it to hurt me. I think she was saying it because she was saying, like, you need to get help because, you know, you never, like, you missed that day at school. It was kind of that vibe, like, you missed the day at school where you learned about emotional toolkits. Yeah. Whereas the person who said, you see... uh, depression you'd seem a bit depressed it's all black and white like I was annoying her and so that was sort of said as a two two wound so yeah some people come with you and some people don't
1: yeah yeah I think that makes sense so when you had gone to the doctor by that point if you don't mind me asking where did you kind of go from there because it sounds like it for you it was a complete because it had been so long it must have been to go from there to where you maybe are now must have been such an overhaul of your kind of every day. Where did you even start?
2: Well, I've been going to the GP for about, I would say probably knocking on for about nine months, nine, 10 months. So every couple of months, like I'm not feeling great. I'm putting on a lot of weight. I feel rubbish. Mm. And I, have, I had a hormone disorder as a teen. I had PCOS growing up and I developed it quite early. So I had some quite severe symptoms and it felt as though they were coming back. So things like uh, weight gain and like my hair was thinning and my skin wasn't responding very well to things. And that's just all classic kind of PCOS symptoms. So that's where I started. I went back originally and I had a, an ultrasound and they were like, yep, no cysts on those ovaries. So So that was when, oh gosh, it must be something else. So I kept going back. And I remember the GP saying to me, I think it must've been like the fifth or sixth time. And he said, if you come back again, I will put you on antidepressants. And I have no problem with that. I just want to say, I actually think antidepressants are amazing, but I felt this very strong feeling that my issues had nothing to do with correcting a chemical imbalance. I knew that it had to do with not having any self-esteem mm. and not having that emotional toolkit and just making really terrible decisions constantly. And it sort of felt like a spiral staircase down. And I thought, well, if I can undo those self-sabotaging behaviors, I can work my way back up that spiral staircase. Um, And so I was like, okay, and what are the other options? And he said about talking therapy. So I said, okay, well, I'll go and do that. And I made a call to my health insurance company and they were the ones who actually gave me the, the test. Like, you mm. know, let's, let's do this questionnaire. And let's get you on the phone with one of our mental health professionals. The classic and, questionnaire. Yeah, and we'll do the, are you... So yeah, I think it came back with severe depression, severe anxiety and mild OCD. And I thought... And I don't know how you felt when you finally had someone say those words to you, but they were the words I've been dreading, like absolutely dreading, because I thought mm. black mark against my name, failure, I had to just attach such a negative vocabulary to what that actually meant. And in actual fact, it was as though the dark fog that had been surrounding me forever lifted. And I looked up and there was a giant red arrow above my head and it was like the you are here on the map. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, now I can get my bearings and now I can get to where I want to be. And it was so freeing and it was so liberating and it was so helpful, which is why I'm really keen to share that because I think people can worry about what a diagnosis like that means. And for me, honestly, it was just, it was like a weight was lifted and as though dark skies suddenly cleared. It really, really was.
1: I find it really interesting to hear just how other people kind of respond. To similar situations. Cause I feel like I was kind of the opposite in terms of what I was looking for in terms of treatment. Like it had taken me quite a long time before I did any sort of treatment really. Um But yeah, I was quite like for the longest time, I was way, way more resistant to doing talking therapy than I was to going on antidepressants. Like it took me a lot longer to start therapy than it did medication Mm. which I think and I mean it kind of I think it goes to show in one respect that there's not really a right or wrong way to do it it's you can get an instinct for these things sometimes and it doesn't mean that you have to do things a certain way and also it's nice to you know hear that you were able to speak to your doctor about it and say that doesn't feel right for me can I try this and I mean yeah and then there are more more options in the tank I suppose aren't there I'm interested to know then how you kind of went from that point of thinking, I'm worried it'll be, you know, a black mark against my name. I don't want I don't want the diagnosis. I don't want anyone to know. And now mental health and kind of depression and stuff is something that you have talked about a lot more publicly. Did that take a long time for you to get to that place, or did you feel like sort of a shift quite quickly? That's interesting. I don't know.
2: I guess I did start talking about it relatively quickly but probably in quite a hinty way to begin with Mm. as if I've got some insight but I'm not going to tell you exactly why Um, and then as I sort of grew in confidence yeah I was just a bit more direct about it on the podcast and also with, with friends and I think it's that thing isn't it I mean I think you've got the measure of some of my friends and I was like oh I'm got diagnosed with depression, they were like, duh. <laughs> um, Great. <laughs> that's helpful. Um, so I think yeah, demystifying it, realizing it's not an enemy. And also again, it's like, depression is something you can work on. Anxiety is something you can work on. And there there are really positive changes that you can make. And it's not a status and this is something that I definitely see. And I sort of think when I do see it, I think, oh, that's such a shame because having depression is not an identity and having anxiety is not an identity. So there are times, for example, a couple of years ago, I went to a party, a work party, lots of glamorous people there. As soon as I walked in the front door, it was like hackles up, didn't enjoy it, It was just couldn't concentrate on the person talking to me because my my eyes were scanning because I was just, I couldn't, Mm couldn't get comfortable and I had to leave and it wasn't necessarily an anxiety attack it was just overstimulation yeah whereas in the past what I would have done is found somebody who would have listened to me moan about the party (laughs) 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 who would have commiserated with me about how awful it was like two two misery guts in the corner and had a sour look on my face whereas what I did this time which shows you the progress that you made is to go actually this is massive overstimulation for me this is just too much this is not a room that I should be in
1: yeah so get a taxi and go yeah take yourself out of it yeah I wonder so when I'm listening to you talk about it and the way that you talk about yourself at that time and kind of the way that you talk about how other people must have seen you you've kind of keep calling saying you were kind of you know like moody or a misery guts or maybe do you feel like that was you expecting other people's judgment of you? And was there part of you, do you think, that when you got your diagnosis, wanted to talk about it more publicly to kind of show that there was a reason and that you hadn't just been like, I don't know, like that for no reason. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hear that and think, oh, oh, what like what's what's wrong with her? Why is she like that? But I feel like there's maybe a bit of judgment still from yourself on that like did you want to kind of explain some of it away in a way yeah I guess so that's a really
2: good observation and when I probably hadn't I hadn't don't think I popped those two jigsaw pieces together in as flushly as you just have so thank you that's actually that's actually really helpful but yeah I think there was a part of me that wanted to talk about it because I wanted to justify mm. because I'm not necessarily proud of having been rea- a reactive person I'm not necessarily proud of having some of the behaving the way that I have done in the past. And like I say, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 37. So there's a lot of memories where I think, oh, I wouldn't do that the same way now. And I know I know that regrets are kind of pointless and it's about learning from them. And I got a pretty decent back catalogue to learn from, but um, which is empowering in and of itself. But yeah, there is a part of me that I think wanted to talk about it because A to yeah explain Mm. to those who might be interested but also I think it's when I have certain podcast guests on and we talk about this about how it's sometimes not about the person listening who might be experiencing a mental health issue sometimes it's about the person who's listening who loves someone or knows someone who is and then can maybe hear how we talk about it and say oh I think that I think that's my friend's behavior like my friend is have you ever you know that group of friends where they say oh so and so is coming but they're a bit of a drain yeah that person might need a bit of compassion a bit of kindness yeah for sure
1: yeah that's yeah it's it's a good point I mean I think yeah we've we've kind of already already talked about this a little bit before but yeah on the reasons why it's important to still have these conversations is kind of for everybody involved it's a benefit to the people who might be struggling it's a benefit to the people who try and understand them and can't it's a benefit to the people who've got no connection whatsoever to the issue and just don't even realize it's a thing (laughs) like I mean that's kind of part of the point of what I always want to do with the podcast is just give people an opportunity to like hear about different things that maybe they don't know as much about as they want to do you feel like there's particular things that you've learned from having a lot of conversations about mental health on your podcast now
2: oh gosh yeah and I think I tend to come from a place of tough love I think that's like the household the household I grew up in a little bit
0: Mm.
2: is I like I remember I'm sure my dad won't mind me saying this but like if ever I wanted to cry, he would say, don't cry. It was, it was a bit of a sort of a, you know, don't have an emotion sort of a, but I have a yeah. lot. Of, I have all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many emotions. <laughs> that, so I kind of was always sort of putting the lid on them. Mm. And so I guess I guess that kind of created a sort of toxic soup in my heart, soul and mind. But And so I think actually getting them out and leaning into them is has been really useful I mean look you know I'm sure you know this it can be really confronting to sit in a therapy session and say something out loud without even really realizing realizing it before you say it and then it comes out and it's so confronting that you are forever changed because of it because you've suddenly put two and two together about something yeah yeah and it will be different for absolutely everybody. But for example, when Wim Hof came on the podcast, one of the reasons I wanted to have him on the show is because he's known for you know, swimming in icy lakes and cold therapy and extreme breathing yeah. and things like that. But actually the thing about him that really resonates for me is that if you want to get to a good place and a good feeling, you have to embrace the pain of it. like. If I don't know if you've ever had a cold shower, like an intense cold shower. Not by choice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, just, you know, ease your way into it. End of every shower, turn that tap to cold. I do it every day. And the thing that you learn from that is that initial feeling where you want to recoil and you you immediately go, (gasps) and you almost want to scream. Mm. That's horrible. And then you have to stay under the water and really just like try and, bear it for as long as you can first 10 seconds and 20 seconds and 30 seconds and work your way up but then it's afterwards that you feel incredible and that mm. to me is what mental health journeys are a little bit like is that you have to acknowledge that there's pain but that from the pain on the other side of it it it's amazing and pain maybe is probably might not be necessarily the right thing but just the discomfort of it and having yeah. to having to accept discomfort and not immediately recoil from it and go and get under your duvet and shiver and put the tv on is that kind of thing it's like discomfort yeah. you know the saying nothing good happens inside of your comfort zone like you have to push the boundaries a bit so I think that's something that has really stuck stuck with me and I think a lot of people who've come on, on my show and talked about their mental health journeys have said the same it's like it's dark it's painful it's horrible but there is light there is release at the
1: other end of it, it but it is work it's definitely work yeah I think that's the maybe one of the things that is still slightly more misunderstood is that it is hard work and it's ongoing work I think in my experience at least and I think for a lot of people it's not something that you necessarily instantly get better from and then never have to work on ever again which I think at the beginning of a treatment journey if you like is quite a scary thought to think you know there's there's no one way I can probably just knock this on the head I mean I don't want to speak for absolutely everybody because that you know there are situations and people you know some people will find themselves in a more kind of situational depression and there are very practical things that they can then do change the situation they might never have to feel like that again which is brilliant but there are then other people who suffer from more clinical depression maybe and it's it's quite daunting to think of it as something that you're going to have to work on for a long time but I agree I think once you settle into it and kind of not be defined by it but take ownership of it and stop stop fighting it so much because I did that for a very long time and kind of was so resentful of the fact that I had to work on it that I would kind of throw my toys out the pram and not do it and the only person who that was harmful to was me and (laughs) Yeah, it took me a while to get over that. But yeah, it's, I think once you start, it's easier, essentially.
2: Yeah, and it is once you have that good day, or not even that good day, once you have that day when you wake up and things don't feel as bleak, you really cling to that feeling and that feeling imprints. Mm -hmm. And so when you realize that you have to do some more work, when you wake up and you think, "Mm, I've taken a couple of steps back here you know that, I don't know about you, but I have, I do have a toolkit in place now. So even a couple of weeks ago, I started to feel like my solar plexus was vibrating, like in my heart, around my heart, I just felt like this sort of, you know, trapped bird in my chest a lot through, and I'd wake up and I'd think, what's this? And I would do my exercise, what's this? It's not going anywhere. And I was just operating on this sort of weird, like obviously something was bubbling up and I was like, right, well, what's going on? nothing's especially going on. What do I need to do? And for me, what really helps is just slowing down. Mm. And like, I do really enjoy Wim Hof's breath work and I really like exercising. I'm a big enjoyer of sweat, not because of the weather, but if I'm, if I'm working out, I think it's great if I like, you know, sweat on the floor always feels really good. Feels Dripping like thing is the A for you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, I want to see, I want to see the visible evidence of m- how much hard work I put in, and yeah, and I just, but I thought, no, the moment something's going on, so it's going to be yoga, it's going to be long walks, and it's not going to be long walks. I normally walk and listen to an audiobook. I love listening to autobiographies on long walks. So it's like, no, you're going to go for walk. You're not going to worry about how fast you're walking. Cause I do love the metrics on a, on a fitness device. Mm. You are going to walk and you, your focus is going to be listening to the birds. yeah, <laughs> And just, just actually not being too plugged in. And that is a kind, that's kind of the, the toolkit that really helps me is just slowing down and actually. I was a great, no, I'll do it. No, that's okay. I can take that on. I can do more. I'll take that on. Yep, I'll say yes to that. I can't say no because if I say no, they'll hate me or they'll never work with me again. And one of the greatest things I've done in the last five years is say no to things. Mm. Not say no because I'm like, I can't cope. Say no because I know you're more trouble than you're worth. And saying no to you is a yes to me. Yeah. So I'm going to say it politely,
1: but it is a hard no. (laughs) I'm saying it politely, but I definitely mean it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, talking about um, the things that you do and kind of coping mechanisms. So, you have—it's not a separate podcast to your podcast, but it's like a subsection of your podcast. I think w- I would kind of describe it as called "Feel Good Habits." How did you—is that sort of would you say a strictly mental health kind of platform for you now? And are there things that tend to come up a lot that people find helpful? Yeah, that one was really interesting.
2: So that one actually started, I think, in the first week of the UK lockdown. So around like March, end of March 2020. Mm. And I was in the middle of one of my sweaty exercise sessions. And I just thought, I, like, I, like you, love my listeners. And it just had this really nagging feeling that I wasn't doing right by them, given mm. everything that was happening in the world. And I thought, what do they need? Like, what do I need? What might help them right now? And so it just came to me in the middle, (laughs) in the middle of a squat, just came to me, Mm -hmm. this feel good habits. And I thought, actually, if you just get people on to share the five things they do, and I sort of couch it in very light, effervescent terms of it's to stop a bad morning turning into a bad day or, but it's really about like, how do you keep yourself above that line? that I was talking that I constantly dipped below.
1: The toolkit that you mentioned, I guess.
2: Yeah. And it started out, it was really funny. It started out like March, April, May. It was like hot
1: baths, bit of yoga,
2: nice cooking. And then by the end of 2020, it was like therapy, <laughs> medication, <laughs> just like people were just really leaning into what helped because yeah. we were obviously going through something really significant. And it has been really lovely. And it is one of those things where you hope that in a half an hour conversation where people are saying, look, do you know what? If I'm in a crappy mood and I feel as though I'm about to sort of, I'm bumbling along in that place that's about to become unsafe mentally, if I clean out my sock drawer, that gives me so much clarity. If there's one person that listens to that who's having a rubbish day and that person goes and they organize their sock drawer and it lifts them out of that funk, oh, that just and I've had messages that would suggest that it is those little things that have got people through dark times. And that just makes my heart swell and makes that fluttery feeling in my chest go away.
1: Yeah, it's so important as well. And such, a I mean, such a great thing to do. And I think it would probably be quite easy to listen to something like that and think of it as kind of trivial because like a, a a piece of organizing versus mental illness you know but th- the thing is with it when you're in the thick of it there's no one big thing that you can do to solve it in an hour like it is pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and some of them will be small pieces some of them will be you know b- bigger chunks of the jigsaw if you like but yeah I, th- I just feel like however you cope and whatever you find works for you is so valuable. So I think those are, those are really good things to share. So thanks for that, Emma. (laughs) You're very welcome. Yeah, it is. It's like you
2: said earlier as well. Um, I had never had any of those feel good habits, which is why when I did fall down and properly like had a breakdown and just, I would say by that, by breakdown, I meant I just, I couldn't do anything else. Getting out of bed was difficult. Getting on the phone was difficult. I couldn't even work out. Like I remember um, I like working out and I remember thinking I'm putting on weight. So I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to go and lift heavy weights because I've been running, but I'm going to go and lift really, really heavy weights and that's going to be amazing. And that I think was the thing that tipped me over the edge. And I think there might have been a spot of adrenal fatigue going on there because around that time I was doing the heavy weights. I spoke to my friend Marcia. It all just got too much. And I went to the doctor, I got the diagnosis And then my next exercise that I attempted was walking around the block. And I think it took me half an hour to walk two kilometers and I had to build my fitness back up from there. Like I remember coming home after that first walk and being saturated, like it had taken everything out of me. So I'd obviously been pushing and pushing and pushing for a long time, not asking for help, thinking I was a burden, like really negative, negative thinking and then It was building back up slowly. And as you say, it's these small, tiny bits of a bigger puzzle. But the walking really helped. So did the cold showers. Like all of them slot into place and form this bigger picture, which is like putting you back
0: together. Hold up.
1: Every week, my guest and I will be answering your questions, and the first one comes in from Naya, who asks, I would love to know how to speak more openly about depression and how to work towards destigmatizing topics such as mental health. For the past year, I've been dealing with depression, and I've often felt embarrassed to talk about it to people and didn't like that feeling.
2: Hmm. Interesting. It's interesting for a couple of reasons, but I would say talk to you about it first, meaning... I had a lot of expectations on other people to confirm what I was going through by me speaking to them and them saying, yes. Mm. And actually that isn't necessarily helpful. If, if Naya is wanting to be understood, that's definitely one thing. But, um, I, th- sometimes I, I worry about, like, I think I wanted to say to people, I'm feeling like this. And I wanted them to just confirm it for me, just say, "Yep, you're you're right, you're you're right." Yeah. So, but if that if you pull your heart and soul out, which you do when you talk about your mental health, or I, it certainly feels like that. I Don't know if it feels like that to you, but it feels very exposing. Mm. Yeah. Um, if you're met with, yeah, but that can be really, <laughs> just like really take the wind out of your sails. So the reason why my first response is think about how you're going to talk, like get it set in your head. Like the only person who's going to be harmed or not do well out of your honesty is you. So be really, really honest with yourself. And I think that's why I sometimes like, God, Emma, you were such a jerk. Like, because sometimes you have to be honest with yourself and say, yeah, you were a jerk, but you're not going to be a jerk again. So I I think honesty and accountability is really important in that. And I think if you're wanting people to understand how you're feeling, everyone is going to see it through their own lens or hear it through their own lens. So I think it's really difficult for parents, for example, to hear that their child is struggling with mental health because they don't want that to be the case. Yeah. So they are instinctively going to minimize it not because they're trying to minimize you but because they don't want it to be true because i think if you say to a parent i've been diagnosed with depression their first second or simultaneous thoughts will be is it my fault did mm-hmm. i do that somehow so i i so everyone has their own lens so If I'm understanding the question correctly, was it, how do I, I'd like to speak more openly?
1: Yeah, I would like to speak more openly. And Nea was saying sometimes she's felt embarrassed to talk about it.
2: Yeah, I think, I don't know if she's in therapy, but I think that really helps you figure out what feels safe to say to another person. And obviously what feels safe to say to a mental health professional versus what it feels safe to say to a colleague or a family member or a friend? and i so i do think it might be a little bit about resetting your boundaries with your relationships and understanding what your expectations are like are you telling people because you want them to cut you a break because you want them to understand because what's the reason and then figure out then what feels comfortable for you to share and protect yourself there's a way of being vulnerable and also protect being protective of of your kind gentle soul
1: it's hard because I think the concept of being embarrassed by it I think will be relatable for a lot of people because for different mental health conditions there's still you know an amount of shame that people tend to feel even though they shouldn't it's still there but I think I kind of I like how you say that of you know talk to yourself about it first because I feel like even just running through the conversation in your head to kind of think, because if you go and tell someone and even if, you know, they respond quite well and are kind of saying, what can I do? What do you need from me? If you haven't really thought about that and haven't really thought about what you need, it's kind of making that conversation more difficult for you than it necessarily has to be. So even if the answer to that question is, I don't really know I just needed to tell someone and I needed you to listen if that's the honest answer and you don't really know what you need that's fine but if you already know what your answer to that question is going to be because you've yeah had the conversation with yourself about it I can see that being a bit easier
2: and I think being embarrassed about it makes me wonder whether that like If I'm talking about my mental health with a friend, I'm going to be very specific about who I choose to talk to. Mm -hmm. And I would only feel embarrassed if I felt like I'd spoken to the wrong person.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Because of what that person might do with that information or what, or because I think, you know, what that person might think. Some people, I have uh, friends who are like, oh, who would roll their eyes if I spoke really candidly about some of the things that I've been through. And so I, I wouldn't then have those conversations with them. Yeah, because I would be embarrassed because their filter is not a sympathetic one.
1: Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, hearing that, like, I think part of that embarrassment is just you feel badly about it because they've reacted badly to it. So I think don't blame yourself for that either, because, yeah, that's it's not always on you. Sometimes people just make you feel that way, honestly.
2: Yeah. And you've got nothing to be embarrassed about. And I think that was something I used to wear other people's emotions over my own. Mm. <laughs> like a coat of many colors. And yeah, think about like, you've got nothing to be embarrassed about. And so if somebody makes you feel embarrassed, you can log that and say, well, that's not on me. Yeah, And that, I mean, everything is information. Like if you think about life as a poker game, if you tell somebody and you feel embarrassed because of how they respond, they have shown their hand and you know, you are now armed with the information not to confide in that person.
1: Yeah. again yeah this is true next question is from danielle who says my question is how do you know if you are depressed or just feeling down i recently lost my mum less than a month ago and i've never experienced a loss like it i have times when i just can't seem to make myself do anything at all i know you just don't get over a loss like this but what can i do to get myself going each day Gosh, I'm
2: so sorry, Danielle,
1: that's horrible. And it makes
2: complete sense that you are not feeling like the version of yourself that you felt before. Um, I haven't experienced that, but I would say that there are specialists who can help you with it, that exact thing. So there are grief specialists. And I do think like I, a lot of friends of mine Have gone through periods of grief counseling when they've lost someone close to them. Because it is one of those things where delegating your thoughts and feelings and what they mean to somebody else can be so utterly useful and helpful. And I would, yeah, it's just as with any mental health journey or with anything, it's not something that you have to go through on your own. There is help out there, and so I would encourage Danielle to see what resources are available to her locally, and just to understand that her reaction is perfectly normal, perfectly within the realms of what would be
1: completely understandable. Yeah, I, I mean, I would add. I think, obviously, being so close, like a month is 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 nothing, is it really? And I think, yeah, being so close to something so traumatic and such a loss. I talked about this on Emma's podcast if anyone then wants to go and listen to that conversation and talking about how when you're in a situation and you rationalize it to yourself in your head and think yes I'm sad and I don't feel like I'm coping but I'm sad for this reason so it makes sense and I don't need to you know it it is what it is there's nothing I can do about it sort of explaining it away to yourself like that doesn't always give you what you need even if there is a reason why you feel sad it doesn't mean that you can't ask for help with that sadness and I mean I think if you try to think of you know the the definition of depression if you like and I think it's where they people will tend to say I mean it's a mixture of usually I think psychological things and physical symptoms and other things but I think they would generally classify it as sort of a sadness and a low feeling that lasts for weeks or months, and it starts affecting you know you don't enjoy things that you used to enjoy, and it starts affecting relationships. And there's there's a lot of different things. I th- I think I'm not sure where you're um where you where you live, Danielle. But I think if you Google and go on the NHS website which for anyone who doesn't know is the health service in the UK. Not necessarily to access, but I think they have, if you Google a depression self-assessment on the NHS, I think that they have publicly that kind of mental health questionnaire that um, you and I were talking about earlier, Emma, we referenced. And I think maybe that would help you kind of, uh, just answering the questions sometimes can make you recognise things. And yeah, I would just say Yeah. Even if you think, well, there's a reason why I'm depressed, it doesn't mean that you have to deal with that depression all on your own.
2: Yeah. And also just to add to that, there's a really incredible uh, woman, Julia Samuel, who's written, she's a a psychotherapist, I think. And she talks a lot about grief and she has a book called This Too Shall Pass. And I think one of the things that has been beneficial to, to me is just reading and learning about all of these things. And you, let, as soon as you start investigating that, like reading about depression or grief or what have you, you realize that how alone you are not, like you are yeah. experiencing something that a lot of people have and they can share the benefit of their experience with you. Because there, there is a benefit to kind of, not that there's a timeline, but they can tell you or give you insight into what you're feeling and, and it validates it, I think. So that sometimes, if you're do it, doing it on your own, you can think, I'm, as you said, you know, there's a reason, but you can still minimise it and think, well, I've just, I've just got to go back to how it was. And actually, I think other people's experiences can make you realise, can validate what you're going
1: through. I think I'm just thinking about it now. It's such, it feels like such a swinging door of how people minimise mental illness. So when we, even just when we're talking about depression, which is only one form of mental illness, you'll look at people who outwardly don't have a reason to be depressed and I say that in air quotes that you obviously can't see when you look at people and think oh well their life is great why would they be depressed would like that's that's fine that's not a thing and then it completely swings the other way and then we end up doing it to ourselves as well and thinking something really sad has happened of course they're sad and kind of you minimize it in the opposite direction as well it's like Mm -hmm. there's, there's really no there's no good way to be depressed it's not it's not a good thing it's just something that we deal with and however you're feeling whatever situation you're in you're never going to be the ideal depression candidate nobody everyone is never going to see exactly what you're feeling but you're feeling it you know you are because you're in your head you can tell so yeah you're no less deserving of help with depression no matter how you got there
2: exactly just because you can't go to a textbook and tick off all the boxes doesn't mean it's not
1: real and happening exactly next question is from eduarda who asks therapy is very important and valid when it comes to mental health but we need to want to be in therapy for it to be effective how can we help a person with mental health issues without pressing them into therapy when the person is not ready to go that's an interesting question because i think you're
2: right you you can lead the horse to water as they say Mm -hmm hmm I remember people used to say to me I think you need to go and speak to someone and what I heard was please go away and stop bothering me (laughs) yeah yeah no I can imagine that um and so by the time I went to therapy I had not gone enough for me to think "I I have to go I was I was quite desperate like I was it was it felt very urgent by the time I walked through the door but I had definitely been the person who felt as though going to therapy was because my friends couldn't be bothered or because my friends had had enough of me and didn't want to listen Mm. to me anymore and you can't treat your friends like therapists it's not fair um so it was completely right for me to outsource it to a professional but yeah if someone's not ready I don't know I mean, you said that. I mean, you were slightly different from me because I was running into that building going, Therapize me. Whereas you had a slightly different response.
1: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's probably between us, that's probably covers this question quite well, I guess. Because from my point of view of how I used to feel, there, yeah, I was definitely in a situation where at least a doctor maybe had suggested more talking therapies. And I didn't want to go I just didn't I didn't feel comfortable for a few reasons but also just I, I don't think I was ready for it and eventually I was ready for it and I went to therapy and I did find it helpful I think there are a lot of different kinds of therapy as well and just I think it's just good to remember that what people need is so individual and because they don't want to go to therapy now doesn't mean they will never want to go and therapy also isn't the only option that's available it can't be because not everyone can even access therapy but I think listening to the person you know if they if they really don't want to go and you can tell don't try to force them because that probably isn't going to help and it's also not the only thing you can do. So my my example before, you know, years before I went to therapy, the main way that I coped and kind of dug myself out of the hole a bit was through medication. And I don't think that there should be a hierarchy of ways that we deal with depression because it is so individual. And just because you think maybe you've found therapy really helpful and it comes from such a good place when you just want someone to feel better and you know what made you feel better that I guess it can be quite frustrating. But I think as hard as it might be, try and listen to what they want rather than suggesting what you would want.
2: Yeah. It's, um, I've spoken to people since I've been in, out of therapy. So I've been through the process and I have suggested it to other people and the look of fear I can see in their eyes is what makes me back up a long way because mm. when I went I like I wanted to vomit everything up and just see I want I I wanted to figure this out I wanted mm-hmm. to say as much as possible because I was so desperate not to feel the way I was feeling but I also know people who feel wretched who the last thing they want to do is talk about it because they are terrified of what they're going to say. They're terrified that they're going to inadvertently reveal something really dark. And so they avoid therapy like the plague. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's going to be true, obviously, but I've defi- I've spoken to people very gently once they've said, that's not for me. And I've said, do you, you know, do you mind me asking what stands between you and going and talking to a qualified mental health professional? Because... I love science so you show me data of, like I'm going to trust it mm. and the, the, the response I've had on two occasions is I don't want to pull at that thread which makes me think I think you're a great candidate for therapy but I'm not going to make you feel I'm not going to make you do it I'm not going to say well you must because as you say the person has to get there in their own time and I, we, I think we also have to respect someone's right to not not want to do it
1: if you want to know about opportunities to send in questions for upcoming guests then follow us on instagram or twitter at good influence gs and email me at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com before you go, I've got three things I ask every guest, and that's if listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about today. Could you please recommend us something to read, something to listen to, and something to watch? Well, something to watch
2: is a really interesting one because I use YouTube as a form of therapy on a daily basis. And by that, I mean, I don't have necessarily a specific video for you to watch because what you need will be, depend on who you are and what you're going through but most days if I feel that afternoon lag where it would be very tempting to grab a nitro coffee (laughs) and (laughs) recaffeinate I go and watch a TED talk Or, or I watch a motivational speaker give a talk of between 15 minutes and half an hour and there is nothing that gets me focused like it because it's tapping out of this sort of malaise I've got into in my head of oh I've got so much on today I'm never going to get it done. You listen to somebody who's overcome something or worked their way through something and you think I can totally get through my to-do list. So I think as a resource YouTube, TED Talks, anything motivational can be like like a switch being flipped in a way that caffeine just can't do or mm-hmm. exercise just can't do and i encourage anyone and this is probably true for all of the things i'm going to recommend don't necessarily go for the person or the subject that feels comfortable there can there's a lot to be said for people who maybe you don't always align with because that's how you grow that's how you expand your knowledge base by listening to someone who you know what it's like you sort of get into that thing where you get into an echo chamber where the things that are fed to you via various platforms it's all the same sort of people mm-hmm. so sort of just prod outside of that a little bit and sort of search for somebody that you would never normally search for I found a guest who event- eventually came on my podcast Evie Pomporus. she is former secret service agent and used to look after Obama and the Clintons and the Bushes and I was my background's a beauty journalist. I would never have come across Evie otherwise. Yeah. And yet listening to her talk about building an emotional defense mechanism was so valuable. And it was mm. because I kind of needed a bit of a pick me up and thought, right, I'm going to find someone. Secret service agent, you say? Let's see what she has to
1: say. <laughs> well, that's a good recommendation to start with anyway, as a, as a watch one. And then we've got read and listen to? So listen
2: to, I think, is another really brilliant one because it's it's passive learning, isn't it? That's why I loved podcasts and that's what made me start a podcast because I loved the idea that you could be driving, walking, cooking, doing and doing pretty much anything else and you could be passively learning. So again, it's quite general, but I would say finding people who like take a minute just to search your preferred podcast platform search a topic and find people that you've never heard of before i find that to be a really valuable tool it's like you can find people that you really admire already there's nothing wrong with that but it's just finding more people and finding someone with a slightly different perspective on a subject that you may already have a huge interest in, like, I'm sure we all, list, like, a lot of my friends love true crime, but they probably have about five or six favorites. And when you ask them why, they're like, "Oh, I like this one because it's about." They tackle it from this angle, and I like this one because it's funny. I like this one because it's um, they always have a pol- a police chief on there or something. So find lots of different perspectives about a subject that you really, really enjoy is what I would say. And I think for me, when I started my podcast. I had been listening exclusively to Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Lewis Howes. hadn't intended for them to be all men, but they kind of were. But I was tapping into people who liked to talk to experts in their field, and that ended up I that because I loved that so much, and because I felt really inspired by all mm-hmm. of those conversations even though I might have been listening to Triple H, the wrestler talking about how he would overcome jet lag by immediately going to the gym the second he landed anywhere. Um, like I found that unbelievably entertaining. And I now if ever I do travel, which hasn't been a, for a while, I will do some form of exercise as soon as I land because of Triple H. <laughs> but I would never have gone into a podcast platform and thought, I wonder what Triple H is up to these days. <laughs> So I love the fact that podcast, the podcast essentially, or podcasting essentially opens up the world to you. Like you get to sit next to someone on a metaphorical train and spark up a conversation and you would never meet that person in real life. Or maybe like there's a big chance you wouldn't necessarily meet that person in real life. And so I think you can have a really intimate insight into someone's Mm -hmm. motivation or whatever it is that you're looking for via a podcast platform. So um Yeah, that would be my recommendation. Just search far and wide. And it's such a rich resource. It really is, for sure. Where are we up to? Reading. Um, Reading. Ah, of course. Reading. So I read a lot and I'm not a natural born reader. So growing up in my house, my brother was the bookworm. And I would sit and start reading and fall asleep because I am somebody who, if I sit still, I just going I just fall asleep I have to always be moving so when I was told to sit down and read what that meant was Emma's was about to start dribbling and fall going and become unconscious and dream about becoming a, a backing singer with Guns and Roses which is how I spent my youth <laughs> uh, and actually I have fallen in love with reading to the point where and it was only recently that i was able to really understand why and so my recommendation is read as much as you possibly can and i had this incredible woman this author on the podcast recently called frances edmonds and she talks about learning it's just it's just making the world bigger every single with every single word and that as soon as she said that to me i thought god that's so true like the places i've been the experiences i've had the things i've learned through books Mm. I just there are many, many lifetimes of experiences and knowledge that I just wouldn't be able to get under my own single lifetime, under my own steam. So my thing is to read as much as possible. And my recommendation actually isn't necessarily a book, but it's a method. So if you're listening to this and you have a massive to be read pile, which I always do. <laughs> yeah.
1: My hands up. I just realised yeah. nobody else can see that. <laughs> but yes,
2: I do. So I get really intimidated by my TBR pile, really intimidated. And it then starts to bully me from the other side of the room and silently tells me that I'm a failure because I haven't picked up any of the books. And after I had this podcast conversation with Francis, I'm like, just organize yourself. So every week I start a new book and I start a new book, which is nonfiction, which I read either on my Kindle or I have the physical copy. And every week I also download an audiobook. And usually that is nonfiction. Usually nine times out of 10, it's an autobiography. And I read two books a week in tandem. And I thought when I set that goal, I thought that's going to be ridiculous. You're not going to have the time. And it has been so easy because, yeah, because I stopped seeing reading as a chore and I started seeing it as exploration, as travel. Yeah. So in the past three months since I started doing that, I've seen the world through Matthew McConaughey's eyes. And that is a trip. <laughs> I that. <bet. laughs> I have uh, been on a journey with a doctor who was born in Afghanistan, who is now set up one of the most pioneering, I mean, it's probably going to win a Nobel prize for it. Like one of the most pioneering medical innovations ever. I have hiked around the world with Sarah Wilson via her book and talked about climate change. I've, I've listened to the world according to Corey Feldman, and that was not what I was expecting. yeah, and so I just think I've stopped seeing books as chores and started seeing them as experiences. and it has tripled the amount that I'm reading. And not just the amount that I'm reading, it's um, mag- really amplified my enjoyment of them because I don't see them as things to do. I see I see them as experiences now. And I feel a bit sad about all those years when I used to fall asleep reading. <laughs> Because it was always there. It was always right in front of me. So, and it does, it makes your world a lot bigger and it makes, it will put your thoughts into context. So, I mean, we've talked about mental health on the podcast. If you're feeling or going through anything, there's a chance you can find someone who's been through something similar, who will offer you help, guidance, comfort, humour, any of those things. And so, yeah, I think, I know none of those have been very specific, but I just, I really do see, any kind of consumption of video uh, audio or reading as a way to basically travel around the world and around someone's consciousness which is just lovely
1: thank you for listening and thank you emma for joining me if you enjoyed this episode you can also head over to the emma gunn show as i've just been a guest on her podcast too i'd love you to subscribe to good influence on whichever platform you're using and if you've got an extra minute you can leave a rating and a review as well your reviews make a big difference and help other people find the podcast. See you next week.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.